What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host, the ever-genial Eagle One from Eagle Speak. We appreciate everybody who is either joining us live or subscribes to the podcast and catches us at a better time to your convenience. If you are with that group, that is joining us live, I'd like to invite you, if you scroll down to the bottom of the show page, that's where you will find the chat room. And we've already got some folks uh, there in the chat room. Uh, Jerry Hendricks, uh, he's joined us along with Paul, our ever ever loyal Paul, who catches almost every show. If, if, something, if Paul doesn't show up more than two shows in a row, I'm going to get worried about him. Um, and, of course, we have NEC338 as well. So if you'd like to, scroll down, join the chat room, especially for today's show where we're doing a free-for-all. If there are some topics you would like for us to address or some questions you just wanted to ask um, my co-host and I, uh, put it in there. We'll grab it and we'll integrate it into the show. We have a few bold-faced items that we put out there in the show prep, but we're going to uh, just bounce around and do pretty much what we want to do. Also, um, we like to, if you are so inclined, to open up the phone lines. So the studio line is open. It's area code 347-308-8397. It's also on the show page there. If you'd like to call in, uh, you're more than welcome to. But besides that, um, glad to be here. Eagle One, happy December to you. Thank you. I have my annual cold, so if I sound a little rough, it's... uh... It's because my grandchildren visited and carrying all the diseases they get at elementary and preschool. Uh, the the petri dish blessings as well. But uh, well, you're you sound you sound as great as always. So we should persevere. Oh. We'll see what happens at the forty five minute mark. <laughs> that, I'm that's blushing the mute now. Button, uh, comes into play. Well, I, as we mentioned the show, I, I guess we we should start the show on. Um, it is kind of a sad note because 47 um, is, and it might be hard for, for young men and women to believe who are in their 20s or early 30s, but 47, you are really, uh, you're hitting your stride, your prime. And for those that have been around the uh, Navy blogosphere for a while or have been with Midrat since our start almost 13 years ago, uh, some of y'all might be aware, um, others may not, um, are when we first started off, uh, we had uh, three three co-hosts on Midrats. 
We had Eagle One, we had myself, and we also had Gallerin, otherwise known as Raymond Pritchett. And he was with us for uh, most of the first year until uh, life had to uh, to pull him off. He had to get his Sundays back. And uh, he was the, the founder of um, the blog Information Dissemination, which uh, Raymond started blogging about four years, three, four years after we did in that first group of people. And uh, he, his readership grew really fast, and it grew fast for all the right reasons. He is, um, he's a very sharp man, especially with IT, um, especially uh, his last job was in uh, cybersecurity for a major U.S. bank. Uh, which is why uh, a lot of us missed him as part of the information space. But you can understand in a job like that, not only is it demanding of time, that your employer also uh, <laughs> probably asks you to, to be a little more discreet. For those, uh, and I would point them that way, if uh, you, can go to, you can go to my blog, I have a link to it. Uh, Raymond was one of, the, one of the great speakers, along with our, one of our callers last game, uh, Mark Vandroff, last mid-routes. Um, he was one of the, the big speakers at NavyCon 1 that we had in Annapolis that now goes every year. Uh, it was a, a great demonstration. If you had never met Raymond in person, uh, you can get to hear his voice for his writing that he did over information dissemination. And one of the, the great things about Raymond is not just what he did personally, but uh, if you go over to information dissemination, it's still up. Uh, look at the other authors that he brought on. He just didn't keep it to himself. Uh, you're going to recognize a lot of the co-authors that he brought in to write. And this was before uh, a lot of the group blogs that morphed into really online magazines. That was before War on the Rocks. That was before 1945. That was before Task and Purpose, all these other places that a lot of people will um, put their work if they don't have their own individual blog. And information dissemination is one of the places that did that. And Raymond introduced um, some new people, but he also gave a platform to some people like uh, Robert Farley, Brian McGrath, and a few others that um, have been an important part of the discussion. And I just wanted to, when it became apparent he, he passed away a few days before Thanksgiving. When word got out uh, that Raymond had passed, even though he hasn't been that active in the information space for years, um, we had him on for our sixth anniversary show on Midrat. I wish we'd done it more often, but that, that, that you don't know what life brings. Admiral John Harvey, that most of you all remember, I think Admiral Harvey said something really nice um, he replied to one of the announcements, I think the one that, that Dr. Farley put out on, on Twitter. And Admiral Harvey said, quote, speaking of Raymond, quote, his insights, analysis, and contributions to the Navy were truly extraordinary. Tough love has never been delivered with more wisdom, end of quote. And um, I think that's a, a standard we should we should all aspire to. And that wasn't exaggerating uh, for Raymond. So, uh, for those that didn't know Raymond, uh, maybe spend some time over at Information Dissemination, maybe watch what he did at NavyCon 1. But for those of us that uh, 
have known him either online or had the pleasure and in person. He was a fun guy. I don't, his, his, if you had read his stuff online, that's pretty much what he was like in person. But he was even more funny, um, and he would also share um, his love for his family in a way that uh, he usually didn't do in public. Um, but uh, please, please take an opportunity, if you're not familiar with Raymond, to look at what he written. And I think we're all expected that uh, he would come back to the information space at some point. Um, but uh, fate had other um, other plans. So, uh, Raymond, we loved you. It was great having you on board, and um, we'll miss you. Over to you. Yeah, I, I got a chance to meet him in, uh, at one of the um, selling shows for the, uh, uh, was it the 1921, 2021, 20, one of the, one of this, one of the plans, the Navy, the Navy plans when, when, uh, Brian McGrath, I think was, was pushing his stuff out. And, uh, he was, he was a great guy and a lot of fun to be with, as you say. Uh, the amazing thing to me is for a guy who had no, uh, military experience was how, um, because of his intelligence and because of the way he approached things he had an amazing impact on the on the navy and and he got to do things and got access to people that is really astonishing for for someone in his position and uh i was stunned when i found out that he had not uh that he died and and as you say 47 uh is awfully young and and it's a shame uh, i hope for his family, that they have nothing but fond memories, and that uh, they will c- continue on in his tradition of being of being good people. Yeah, and he he was he was good people. Uh, he didn't suffer fools very well. <laughs> if you ask him what what he thought about something, he would always he'd tell you, but he'd do it with a little wry wry uh, look on his eye. Uh, uh, he was just a great guy. Uh, it's. Well, he was originally from Arkansas, but he's spent at least the time that I've known him um, since 2007. He's been in uh, the Mid-Atlantic, New York area. Um, so as an expat Southerner, and I, I lived up in, in New England as well, so we would do our little regional comparisons. And we had a lot of fun with it. But you brought up something, and I think I had mentioned this to a few folks, is uh, and this is, goes back to a topic that, that we've talked with guests with over the years, and I know you've talked to people like this as well, is there are people out there who are really smart, but maybe they never wore the uniform, or maybe they're just a 24-year-old J.O., or maybe they're just some guy who just finished his Ph.D. and is working on the Hill as a gnome, but they've got good ideas. Um, and I don't know whether it's uh, stage fright or that that – that specter that haunts a lot of really good people, imposter syndrome or whatever, that people won't step into the space. Or if they do step into the space, somebody will come at them and say, like, what are you talking about this? You never served or you don't have an advanced degree in this. You can't talk about that. Raymond didn't come from a Navy background, but the Navy was his passion. And he was kind of in a slightly different way, but he was kind of like Tom Clancy, who was an insurance salesman. But he had a sharp intellect and a great interest in the Navy, and he picked up a lot that people who spent decades in uniform didn't get, and he put his thoughts together, and he brought in, and he talked to to people who could fill in some knowledge gaps for him, and that's what made him a very important person in the conversation space, 
And I always used him as an example when I would talk to people to get them to write or to get them to engage. And sometimes they get them to come on mid-rats. And um, they would be hesitant or uh, perhaps too humble. And we could always point to Raymond and say, hey, you know, if he can do it, you can do it. Uh, just just step out there in the marketplace of ideas. ideas. If you have good ideas or, or observations or commentary uh, that, that you want to put out there, put out there. See what happens. And uh, he he did it. He did it really well. And I think he. And again, I would encourage people to go over to information dissemination and look at some of the people he brought on to also write there. And it um, the more voices, the better. I think uh, if uh, if it's something that's not of value, the marketplace will will vote accordingly. But if it's something of significance, uh, it uh, it'll it'll rise to the top. Just like you know, you and I have have we've had a few of them on guests here. Is there are people who are just a couple years out of college that have uh, insights and um, observations and ideas that are of a much higher quality than the most credentialed people in the world. And uh, that that's one thing that I think Raymond was a great example, who continued to be a great example of that. The downside to that, however, is there will be people who will find themselves in situations kind of like Raymond, where uh, you've got uh, a paying gig that uh, has to be your priority because that's how you take care of your family. And um, some of those people uh, back out of the space because they, they need to for larger reasons. And um, maybe they'll come back. Maybe they won't. Um, but that's, that's, I think, also is, is part of, of Raymond's uh, legacy in, in that regard that we can still point to. Yeah, we've had a number of young um civilians and young officers come on the show and and the nice thing about it is i mean you know uh the stuff they said i don't see how anybody could you know the if the fear is of being ridiculed or or being wrong all of us are wrong about some things but uh, these guys have been really sharp and presented uh arguments that that all of us you know, you look at it and you go, I never thought of it that way, but, but it, it's helpful to get that different perspective, and that was what Raymond was good about. He was he gave us a different slant on things. He wasn't hidebound by, by being a SWO or being an NFO or being a, a, a pilot or being a supply officer or whatever else you could be. You know, he was he was he was Raymond, and and he he took things uh, that he saw that he thought were interesting and followed up on them. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it you know it opens the mind, but also makes it a, a little bit uh, a little bit fearless, which is a, a good feature. And we've got a, a caller coming in, and um, hey, they're taking us up on our offer. Area code seven zero three, you're live on Midrat. So good afternoon. Hey Sal and Eagle One, this is Jerry, um, and I I wanted to call um, uh, about Raymond and and really the the huge impact uh, that he had. Uh, you know, not only because of the level of analysis that he did, which I was, you know, really quite frankly shocked, you know, when I found out that he did not have a, a naval background. Uh, but you're right; I think the Tom Clancy analogy is is useful because um, he didn't make many mistakes uh, when he was looking at things. Uh, he he seemed to have a a technical acumen that uh, that you know far surpassed really you know what you would expect. 
But the thing that, that I was most grateful for, and I, I tried to reach out to the family, uh, you know, through various different channels, is that in, you know, in 2008, you know, when I wrote my essay about buy Fords, not Ferraris, uh, you know, it got into proceedings and it got a little bit of a bump, but it wasn't until Raymond elevated the conversation at information dissemination and that I really began to realize how many people inside the building, where I was working at the time, I was inside the Pentagon as a staff officer, but suddenly, you know, everyone's talking about, you know, hey, do you, did you see the, you know, the analysis that he did about your essay? And all of a sudden, you know, he had an amplifier uh, that really resounded around the Navy, around the Pentagon. And if he latched hold of an idea and started to trot it out and examine it and turn it over, you know, sometimes it makes you a little uncomfortable because he, you know, he was sort of unsparing in his critical analysis. But if he liked it, if it passed his sniff test, then, you know, suddenly, you know, you were on a radar uh, because of his sponsorship. And so in many ways, um, and I, I say this with, with all, you know, honesty, in many ways, you know, my path out of the Navy after I retired uh, to go to work in a think tank and then ultimately an analysis in many ways was pushed along by, by Galron, by Raymond Pritchett, uh, who, who's helped to elevate my profile and then really gave me some good positive feedback, made me feel better about writing and taking on the system because, hey, if you could pass his sniff test, then, then maybe it, I wasn't so far off. Uh, and I think as we look at, you know, sort of uh, the challenges, you know, we had debates within the Naval Institute about the direction of the Institute. I remember gathering uh, Ray and a couple other bloggers when I was the director of Naval History uh, to sit at the old general board conference table to kind of talk about where we were going. It really, there was some years there um, around, you know, 2008 through about, 2015, where there was some real, real churn, and it felt like we were moving in a direction. It didn't seem like we got there, but boy, it was a, it was a hopeful time, and it was hopeful in many ways because of the the work and the effort and the energy of, of Ray. So, I was so glad, uh, Sal, for what you wrote at your blog site, uh, and then also that you brought it up this weekend. You know, you mentioned that 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 time period, and I think I. I outlined that as like you know, phase three or whatever that went up to about 2016. And you know, I think what it was, and this is still there to a certain extent, but the, the antibodies of the system have um, gone against it. But a lot of the interest in, in Raymond and what he wrote was the fact there is a hunger out there in, both in senior uniformed, and civilian leadership. I mean, uh, Bob Work and Raymond were, were 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 talking back in the day on a regular basis, for good yeah. reason. Um, is people want to hear objective opinion because the people they're around with each other on their staffs, um, their organizations, or if they're a political appointee, the people they have in the office. Uh, there might be some trust there, but a lot of these people, you don't know what their agenda is, what their uh, real opinion is. Are they telling me this because I'm their boss? Are they want something from me? Or are they actually telling me this because this is what they think? Um, you know, I just outlined this. Does everybody approve? Uh, you know, why, why not? What am I missing? Where if you have somebody who 
is objective and doesn't seem to have any agenda except for ideas like Raymond was, people find that interesting. They want to talk to those people because they don't owe them anything and um, they don't want anything. And, and, and Raymond didn't. And uh, he, I got the quote I did from John Harvey uh, earlier, and there are, there are other ones out there from very, pretty significant people that if, if you told them there was this, uh, this guy from Arkansas who worked in IP that uh, was typing away on a, on a blog by himself within you know, 48 months, he would be talking and influencing the following people. They wouldn't believe, but it's just uh, one of those things that uh, was a great credit to him. But uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier, I think a, uh, a benchmark there for those who, who want to uh, be part of the conversation but maybe are holding back for one reason or another. Didn't hold Raymond back, and you've met him in person too. <laughs> he, yeah. he didn't hold back from anything, any type of opinion, uh, but he, he, did it in, he did it in the right way. Yeah, I agree, and thank you again. I'll, I'll listen in on the podcast. Thanks, Jerry. We appreciate you dialing in. Okay. Where are we? Well, there we go. I, uh, you know, this, some of the folks have made made comments in in the chat room. And um, anyway, that was a um, good thing about the internet is uh, if people want to go back and uh, see what what Raymond has has written over the course of the years. It's always going to be always going to be available to us, and uh, I guess uh, tip a hat, and uh, hopefully uh, we won't be joining Raymond anytime soon. But uh, forty-seven is a lot earlier. His um, I would offer if there are people that want to give a comment of condolence directly to Raymond's family. Raymond's uh, Facebook page uh, is uh, I think it's one of his daughters. I could be wrong here. Um, they have the password and they are um, monitoring it. So if somebody wanted to go, who was on Facebook, wanted to go over to Raymond's page and make uh, make a note that uh, his family will see that. So um, I guess we can we can move on to 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 the next I guess topic of discussion. Uh, we we kind of covered this pretty good in the pre-show. Maybe we should record the pre-show. But uh, one of the most fascinating things. And don't just apply to the topic at hand for me. Or are uh, critical aspects of military economy or just plain human living that have been around for a long time, but they become, in times of peace and quiet and security, they just become part of the background noise. They're just part of nature. There's, you don't appreciate what you have. It's kind of like a 21st person, 21st century American getting nobody ever quite well. Some people do. But generally speaking, um, uh, you you turn on the tap, you clean water, and you're off and running. Uh, but previous generations and in many parts of the world, that's not true. Uh, and, and part of that is we still don't have a final word if we ever will. The Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines under the Baltic Sea uh, were blown up. And uh, that had everybody not just waking up to the vulnerability of those gas pipelines, which are always really exciting when they blow up because they create nice, nice bubbles and occasional flames, 
but the fact that so much of what the world runs on, not just gas, internet connectivity, telephones, um, banking information all over the world runs on cables, cables under the ground. And I know that uh, you've done a little bit of reading up on that. And I, I guess for the listeners, um, you know, give them kind of underwater cable one-on-one. And I would just offer to folks, if you haven't seen a graph, uh, a chart of all the undersea cables do that, and then picture all the water gone. And that gives you an idea of the incredible infrastructure that's just under there by itself, relatively unprotected under the water. Yeah, it's pretty. It's I started digging into this because we so we're going to do it on the show, but it's pretty interesting. I mean, they're they're about ninety five plus percent of all international communications flows through these uh, international cables that run under the oceans, and um, you know if that was disrupted, you can imagine all the financial data. Not just the the sending pictures to your grandparents of your kids, but all the all the international finance, all the business deals, uh, military communications. There's, I mean, the, the, it's just incredible the amount of stuff that goes through there, and it would be very disruptive if uh, someone cut those cables. Um, so the U.S. I think has like 300 different cables that come into the that come into the the, the, the uh, U.S. And these things have, um, for the most part, the cables are laid in the, in the ocean and they're deep enough and they're buried three or four or five feet under the uh, bed of the ocean, uh, except in the areas where you can't do that and they try and avoid uh, valleys, under undersea valleys and stuff. But uh, the, the thing is, there, there are two things you can you worry about one is that somebody's going to develop a submarine a gosh like like the russians who have this uh, uh research quote research vessel that contains a, a submarine that is a manned submarine to go down and, and tap into into these cables and this research vessel russians have the the uh, taran i think it is uh bobs around and, and has shown up in various uh Places like off Ireland, the Yantar, the Yantar, the Yantar is the name of this, of this thing, showed up near Ireland, where, uh, or up in the Shetlands, where the uh, these cables uh, have connections. And, and the, the, there's another Russian ship, the actual one that showed up in the Shetlands, right after the cables got cut up there. And the question was being asked, well, are, are the Russians sending a message that they can do this? And the other concerns you have is where the cables come into the country. There are not that many locations where these cables come in. They're like around New York City. There are several locations, but it's, uh, you know, it's not thousands. It's, it's, a, it's a few. There's some on the West Coast in California, Oregon, and, and Washington State. Um, and then we have these lines that go through Hawaii and Guam and, and out into the, uh, into the Pacific. If you, uh, if you saw the, the tweet I put that up to advertise the show it's an incredible um uh and dynamic uh system of 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 these of these communication lines um and the question is uh what are we doing to protect them and and that is a a a uh a, 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 a 
is really a challenge. Once you dig into this, you go, well, how do you protect these? You know, somebody's got to protect them on shore so nobody can blow up the connections on land at the places where these cables come in. But what do you do to protect them out in the middle of the ocean? And and if they do get damaged, how do you repair them? The uh, the answer to that is, is and the same thing with, with underwater pipelines from these uh, various oil and gas fields uh, off the uh, U.S. coast, off uh, the Gulf of Mexico, off the coast of California, off uh, and all the North Sea infrastructure for the oil and gas rigs up there. Uh, well, how do you deal with a, with a problem? And the answer is you have to have uh, some kind of cable or pipeline repair vessels that are capable of going down and doing, doing the work to fix those things. Now, the question then becomes, well, who's in charge of this? Uh, if Who's in charge with defending these, these, these lines, these, these vital lines of communication? And uh, as someone uh, pointed out, uh, a guy named uh, Robert Martinage said the uh, no government agency or department, this is U.S. government, has responsibility for the defense of the country's energy and cable infrastructure. So, so who's going to do it? You know, the Coast Guard has some responsibility for things that are, that are inshore or in port, but they don't really go off into the deep water. So who who is going to defend these these lines and protect them against any kind of sabotage? And the uh, the initial response to this has been that you know well is it legal for someone to cut your lines? And the answer is if you're out in the middle of the ocean, probably if it's if if there's war going on, we did it in the past. We cut the the Spanish uh, telegraph lines from uh, uh, Cuba and, and the Philippines. Uh, way back in 1898, um, but you know, various agreements have been that we wouldn't do that unless there's a war going on. The Brits cut the German telegraph lines in World War One. They seem to have messed around with them. In fact, they tapped into them in World War One to help get the uh, get some of the uh, uh, coded material they they later broke, uh, and including like the Zimmerman telegram. That's how they got that. The the uh, in World War Two, they may have they may have cut them again, but the 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 uh, so it, it is possible during wartime to cut these things, and, and nobody's going to do that much about it if it's a war. You've got to figure that it's going to happen. But what about in a non-war situation when you've got um, these gray area things? Where, you know, somebody goes, well, we, we don't know how, who did that. Who, who would do such a terrible thing? And, uh, uh, you know, that, that is the problem in the, in the current world is that we don't, we don't know sometimes who would do this. So the U.S. government, uh, Congress, did pass a, a, a plan uh, for the Department of Transportation, our friends at MARAD, as a matter of fact, to uh, institute a, a, a thing called the Cable Security um, um, Program. Actually, Cable Security Fleet. And the fleet, <laughs> the fleet consists of, of two ships, which are are uh, civilian manned uh, U.S. flagships with, with U.S. crews, but they're a civilian. They're owned by a company that that uh, the U.S. government pays uh, five million dollars a year each to have these these uh, cable repair ships uh, hanging hanging standing around. Uh, but here's what you get when you look look into this uh, cable security fleet program. Um, the Department of Transportation 
doesn't like it. They don't want it, and they're not going to fund it. So they got funded for one year for $10 million. And then the next year, 2022, they didn't fund it, despite the fact this one person – hold on, I got this cold – as uh, one person said, the, they just canceled the program. Uh, they deleted funding just, despite the fact they received billions of dollars under the infrastructure law. The DOT deleted funding for the modest $10 million annual stipend needed to continue funding the, uh, the uh, cable security fleet. And this is according to uh, Douglas, Douglas Burnett. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, the amazing thing is, is, is that that change you find under the soap cushion money. And when you look at our economy, and I've, I've said this once, I'll say it a thousand times. I have a nice long draft on the topic that I've actually had since the fall of 2020. Maybe I'll publish it someday. Anyway, we're a maritime and aerospace nation. And our economy and really our civil society relies on a lot of things that people just don't see. And the, the underwater cables that carry, you know, you, you mentioned the, um, the underground pipes that bring in oil from off the coast, off of Louisiana, um, not to mention, you know, gas pipes as well. Uh, the, the information, the internet, the phones, the communications, and the fact that it's not guarded and we just assume it's safety. And, and in part of it, I think, uh, there's also a little bit of a challenge here, is you have high-end threats and low-end threats. The high-end threat, uh, ironically, might be one of the easiest ones to, to go after. That's something like where you have a submarine, a special submarine. We have special submarines. The Russians have special submarines. The Chinese have special submarines, I think. Um, they can do, go do special things. That's keeping track of what they're doing is anti-submarine warfare. Um, you also have not necessarily blowing up or, you, like you mentioned, uh, tapping into those information lines for espionage purposes. And blowing them up can be something that we saw in the Baltic that involved uh, explosives, but you also have a low-end threat where – now, a lot of this is very, very deep at the bottom of the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean, thousands of feet deep. But everybody has a continental shelf, and when they come up, all you need is a, a trawler and a big grappling hook on the back and some idea where they are. And this has happened before, and you just drag those puppies up. Or if you want to get kinetic about it, they, all these things do come ashore someplace. Um, but, you know, that's perhaps a harder problem than it is going 175 miles off a coast with a nondescript third-party trawler and just pulling that puppy up or sending somebody down. So how do you defend that? Are there ways you can monitor cables remotely? Uh, I'm sure there are some ways, but at the end of the day, you have to have good surveillance to know, you know, forget the submarines, just the surface ships. Where are your cables? What are the ships near the cables? And you are going to have to have ships out there that are going to be able to go investigate those ships during times of advanced crisis. The time to 
fix a cable break is not after it's been sabotaged, but to catch the person who's going out there to sabotage it. And of course, that opens up, you know, one of our favorite areas. Um, the the Brits use the phrase. I, I don't think they're going to adopt it, which is a shame. The militarized version of the offshore supply vessels they were going to call the sloop of war. Uh, the Danes have things that are very similar. Uh, they're um, can handle high seas, long endurance, any range. Um, you know, that might be something off the shelf you would have to get to do that type of security. Um, commandeer stuff from the oil industry that would make them very happy, and they need to do that to keep their oil stuff going. But that would, um, I always wind up saying stuff like this because it's true, but that would be a great mission for like the Naval Reserve or even the Coast Guard Reserve is to have those capabilities and those people who are trained for it because you don't need it full time. But when things ratchet up, pick up the phone and all of a sudden you've got a half dozen on each coast that are ready to, to do that type of security mission. And uh, kind of the offshore version of what the Naval Reserve used to have, and I think they still do, but just at a lower amount. You could probably just, uh, come at this a little better. They're uh, import security detachments. Uh, you know, that's another way to look at it. So looking at that vulnerability, uh, the old critical capabilities versus critical vulnerabilities discussion, uh, this might be an opportunity to extend that conversation. Uh, look what happened in Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2. Let me tell you what's going to happen to uh, and what the banking in New York and London rely on. Uh, let's talk about uh, how we get hydrocarbons from the Gulf of Mexico into Louisiana. It's a complicated target, and I'm going to channel a couple of our buddies here, Sal Mercagliano and, and John Conrad. Where's my maritime department? If the Department of Transportation doesn't want to do it, if the uh, Department of Defense doesn't want to do it, you know, if we had a maritime department, that might be a good place for it to go, but somebody has to take ownership of it. I don't think Department of Transportation's um, the place you want to put it. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that this when when uh, Doug Burnett was was writing about this, he said he said this the irrefutable position that the submarine cables and the ships that lay and repair them are critical has the strong endorsement of all national security agencies. But this was not enough to sway some of the senior DOT officials who overrode DOT's own Marad to kill. Uh, CSP, which I think he meant CSF, the the uh, uh, cable security fleet, when it was first introduced in the in Congress. However, uh, Congress recognized the compelling national security need and acted um, uh, uh, to to set the thing up. But but the, the DOT people still didn't want to do it. So. Uh, it says, you know, uh, DOT opposition is tied to bureaucratic complacency, outdated misconceptions of modern inter international communication technology, and a potential disruptive and potential disruptive impacts, and an unexplained view that protecting cables is not important or is a problem for others because transporting data is not DOT's concern. Even though then Secretary of Transportation Elaine Chow wisely directed DOT civil servants to stop delaying implementation of the law, DOT tried repeatedly but unsuccessfully present implementation through bureaucratic holding tactics. So, so that that is uh, a, a pretty stinging indictment of the DOT and why they uh, 
why they shouldn't be and maybe shouldn't be involved in this. But you know, is the, is the Navy going to take on this mission? I mean, we we have in in the MSC fleet right now, I think two cable layers. Um, Left over from the from the days of Sosis and and the other they were replaced at the IUSS whatever, um, you know and and so that's important for for Navy purposes, but there you know that uh, that's good but they, these I can't believe we're spending five million dollars only five million dollars a year to keep a couple of other. Uh, uh, cable uh, repair ships uh, around, and, and and they're too blind to do that. So uh, it's just one of those inexplicable things. Uh, in a way, it is explicable because the what you described there—the bureaucratic slow rolling of the uh, what do all the cool kids call it, the deep state—it uh, yep. reminds me of uh, the critique people have of the State Department, and this is decades long, is you have this permanent bureaucracy who seems more interested in preserving their own habits and their own mortgage payment in Alexandria than they do actually pursuing the interests of the U.S. And you have people who are forward, whether they're ambassadors or whether they're people on the cable layers, who know what the mission is, know the criticality, but they work within a certain bureaucratic structure. And when they try to work through that structure, they find that their biggest opponent is not the mission, it's not other nations, it's their own people who have been assigned in their uh, Civil Service Act protected position uh, to, to do something besides what is really their job. So maybe we need civil service to form it, uh, reform, deform, <laughs> Freudian slip, um, civil service reform at the uh, Department of Transportation as well as the Department of State. And it's and we had a couple of our guests who have actually had to wrestle with this beast, talk about it. But that is one of the things that uh, I don't know what right combination of political appointees and top cover it will take, but our government bureaucrats uh, are starting to look less like the government system that uh, won World War II and the Cold War and more like something in line with uh, the Ottomans and the European Union and that it's more of a jobs program and a social status preservation program than it is actually doing the nation's bidding. Uh, that might be a, a little extreme, but it's always been kind of a, a a pet peeve of mine is the fact that a lot of people, we, we see that in the, in the Navy as well, when people are trying to, to work an idea, a concept, and the people who've been in the bureaucracy for a long, long time and know how to make it work, uh, they can absolutely stop and derail um, and end anything that they don't really want to see for whatever reason it might be. Uh, if they're on your side, I guess that's a feature. If they're not on your side, it's a bug. But uh, as, a, as an attorney knows, uh, complexity is a tax. Complexity is also a, a defensive mechanism that people can use for, if it's not job um, preservation, it can be rent-seeking, it can be a variety of things via regulations and bureaucracies. Uh, I don't 
I don't know if we've ever actually had a time where either one has shrunk, but each year more of it grows, the harder it's going to be for people to address issues just like we're talking about that have been neglected, that need some attention. But I'll guarantee you that um, when war comes and people don't have their Internet and they cannot communicate and um, they can't heat their homes, uh, they're going to ask why. And uh, the answer is going to be surprising to some people. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's already happened. And, and it, it, a lot of times things have happened due to earthquakes and, you know, so Japan after the the uh, uh, tsunami took out stuff. I mean, they, they lost a lot of their their uh, cables into, into them. The, the people in Tonga, uh, as you may remember, I think they have a single line in there that got you know, and it it's not a matter of just oh yeah, it's broken. We'll send out Joe in the in the boat, and we'll drop some more cable. I mean, you know, this takes months to to recover from this. It's it's it is not a yeah uh, it is not a uh, a simple problem. Uh, the Brits, by the way, have decided they're going to go with these a new uh, Royal Navy surveillance ship, multi-role ocean surveillance ship, uh, to help look at the problem. Of, of dealing with the uh, cable and, and pipeline, uh, underwater pipeline issues. The, the Norwegians have been talking about uh, developing some kind of system that would identify when when some threat, it sounds an awful lot like sonar or SOSIS or something, is, is near their pipelines. Um, you know, and I don't, I don't it, it's, it's not like there aren't, I mean, when I say there, there are, Seven hundred thousand miles of these of these lines. I mean, it's 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 a huge uh, problem, and uh, you know, they, and the thing is, that even if they don't take all of them down, let's say you take down a couple of the major ones, the the load would shift to some of the other ones, but that means everything gets slowed down, and and you know that can crash your system too. So uh, it it is a it is a challenging uh, a challenging problem. And uh, I don't see that anybody's particularly decided to take this on. So I remember, and I looked around and I couldn't find it. I'm sure it's out there if you dove into the um, hobbyist websites. But I remember the the situation with Tonga you described. That basically they they dropped off the map. They had no communications. And I'll guarantee you, just like everybody has around here, you've got that. The cranky person that has a gate on their property that says trespassers will be shot, but you can see at the end of their property there's this antenna sticking up, is there are a lot of people who are ham radio, which is you know long HF, long wave, depending on the atmospherics and the frequency, you can hop almost across the planet. That uh, And this has happened a few times of other national natural disasters, is a couple of those old cranks that have shortwave radio People knock on their door. They <laughs> say, we got to get some information out. And you very quickly fall back to 130 years ago. Um, our technology is great and wonderful, but it is incredibly delicate. And you mentioned the U.K. I'm not surprised that they're trying to address this because that island nation knows really well. I mean, she can't feed herself. Uh, she has North Sea oil, but uh, you talked to a friend of mine from college. She works in the IT industry in Aberdeen, which is kind of their uh, version of Stavanger, Norway, or our Houston, Texas, kind of their energy capital. Um, it's amazing 
the amount of uh, information that comes through those those areas. Uh, that uh, if all that stuff shuts down, it, it quickly becomes um, economically existential because they are really, really, really sensitive. So it'll be interesting to watch uh, what the what the UK does. I think here in America, unless something ridiculous happens, we probably won't be able to get much traction on it unless we have somebody, a political appointee, who has it on you know, their agenda to make it happen and knows how to use the bureaucracy in that direction. And it's not that when you compare the potential economic impact and you know, industrial impact, which is your warfighting impact, the cost of that compared to the cost of securing it, there's a huge differential there. But again, it goes to understanding the problem, understanding the challenge. You know, who in who in Congress can we point to that when you slap that map up there of all the undersea cables are really going to understand that? I can count on on one hand right now, and a couple of them will not be here in the new year. Who would be able to understand that? And and ultimately, that's where your funding is going to be, or really the only place that you have to push back against an executive branch who um, may not have that in their top 150. Well, the trouble is those cables aren't anybody's voting area. You know, none of their constituents are out in the middle yeah. of the Atlantic. You know, so uh, that, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a problem, but, you know, I'm not, I, I need to worry more about X, which is a domestic issue. Um, but you were talking about the, uh, the shortwave radio people. I know in the in the uh, the National Weather Service uh, uses very much uses these uh, shortwave radio operators, ham radio operators, uh, when we've got a severe storm and knocks out the power, knocks out everything. These these folks have you know they're wired in their cars. They've got extra batteries, you know, and and uh, they provide a real service to the to the community. And so it it are we have the infrastructure in some ways. Uh, for that, um, that so that you know we know that can be done, but it, boy, is that complicated when you're going to try and get the kind of message traffic we send now compared to what we used to send um, to make things work. And and uh, Paul makes a good point: the 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 pipelines and the um, cables are all owned by private industry, and maybe corp, you know multi, multiple corporations will have a, a share in any given uh, undersea cable. Um, but that also complicates matter because there are international companies are involved too. In fact, one of the concerns is that China uh, wants to horn in on on some of these cables, uh, which is probably the last thing we need for them to do. So, yeah, the Huawei of the seas that would be interesting in a variety of ways. It, it goes to that. There is, there is a Huawei. There is a Huawei Marine, by the way. <laughs> of course, there is. And all this stuff runs on software, and you, know, you don't have to have a bunch of C4 or a grappling cook to um, blow up a internet cable, to blow up a data cable, to blow up a voice cable. You just have to have malicious software or hardware that, when it receives a certain code, uh, destroys itself. It's um, you know you don't have to you know write a SQL to um, uh, Ghost Fleet or any of those other science fiction uh, novels to be able to go through a few scenarios there. But I I guess there's also with all the private ownership, because we've seen this in other areas of the economy, there's also huge legal issues of 
what you can access, what you can control, what do you do, who has access. But it's it's not a challenge that's going to uh, become a lesser of a larger challenge if you don't even have the people responsible for it right now. The Department of Transportation is going to take an interest in it. It will just have to to uh, wait until it becomes a crisis, kind of like you know last week. Uh, do a quick segue here. You know, last week uh, when we had our uh, our free for all discussion, uh, Mark Vandroff called in, and we we talked about Ukraine a lot. And uh, I saw a really interesting comment that it kind of parallels the same thing. It's the it's the critical wartime danger that's hidden in plain sight. Whether you're talking about underwriter cables, or you're talking about industrial capacity, and we've we've talked a lot over the years, even before the Russia-Ukrainian war, quite a few times about how delicate our uh, real combat power is and that we're, we're not designed for extended combat at scale. And the, the Russians are lucky in the fact that they had this huge leftovers from the Soviet Union they could draw on, and they had spent the last eight years having those accidental explosions at storage facilities in Ukraine that destroyed a lot of their inventory. Um, and Ukraine has been lucky in the fact that they have received a lot of help from the West to get uh, additional weapons and additional expendable ordnance in place. But when you look at us, uh, nobody's coming to our rescue. There's nobody that's a bigger country that produces more than we do. We've got to do what we've got to do. And We've been at peace for so long, besides you know, the last extended war we really had was Vietnam, and that there's some hard math out there that I would love to get some war gamers in to, to, to work at, is the problem that the, the Russians and the Ukrainians are, are going into, is you have expenditures of Ordnance X, you have inventory Y, that gives you an outpush when you know how much you're doing per day. How long can you fight this war until you're 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 out of Schlitz? The industrial capacity, and we we talked about this briefly in the past. Uh, there are great graphs for how fast our fleet grew from Pearl Harbor to Tokyo Bay, but that all started in 1936. It took years to grow the industry to the point that it could really explode at scale to build the size fleet we want. But uh, nations have been at peace for so long that they have the, – the quote went roughly, um, nations have been at peace for so long they have forgotten the industrial requirements for conventional warfare. And be really interesting to play it out when you run well, out, but, but you haven't they, run out of, you haven't run out they, of war. Red Storm Rising, they, they, you know, that was based on a, on – a war game that Larry Bond and, and uh, Clancy were messing around with. And they went Winchester. Remember that one of the scarier things in the book was when all of a sudden you realize, yeah, we shot off all this stuff at, at useless things. Now here comes the real threat. Um, you yeah. know, it, 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 it is an, an issue. And it, um, you know, the, the other thing is that I was thinking the other day, I said, you know, what was the population of the U.S. in, in World War II? And it's like a hundred and, I don't know, 120 million, something like that. So yeah, I am baffled like by the fact. 
I'm baffled by the fact we've got 330 million people now, and we can't uh, we can't ratchet up work to to get people to to do things like build ships and 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 create munitions. Where where is what is our workforce doing? Uh, that you know that and what would happen if the if the balloon goes up? Who are we going to take from some job where they're uh, I don't know monitoring what people say on Twitter? And and are we going to put them into a, a munitions factory and have them screw uh, 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 you know five inch rounds together? What what exactly? Where are we going to get these people to do this stuff? And can, if it can be automated, can obviously it should be able to automate a lot of it. But the uh, the missiles, the harpoons, and the and all that stuff, they seem to be handcrafted by by gnomes somewhere. I don't know why they take so long to produce, but maybe you have a concept of that. Yeah, Patriot missiles are the same way. They're they're created by artisans. They're to to use one of my favorite words. They're exquisite. They are expensive. They're delicate. They have lots of parts. And what's really interesting is. I'll use that word in the Chinese meaning, not in the English meaning. Uh, there's a, they also have very interesting supply chains. Um, you know, the classic example of that, use another country, is the um, tactical drones. I refuse to call them kamikaze drones. Our our friend uh, Alicio has a, a good reason why not to call them kamikaze drones, because it's really a tomahawk for kamikaze drone. Anyway. The Iranian uh, tactical drones that the Russians have been using, uh, a couple of them have been shot down. They've done the forensics on it. And so much of what they're made uh, is made in the U.S., is made in Europe, because they can't be made locally. And that's true with a lot of our military infrastructure. You know, there, there's no – in this huge continent-sized nation of 330 million people, we no longer have a lead smelter. We can't, we can't produce our own lead anymore. We shut down the mines. We shut down the smelters. Um, not because we ran out of lead. Um, it was, again, going back to our bureaucratic friends in, in D.C. and what they like to do. Um, they, they shut it down. So if you need lead for anything like, oh, I don't know, uh, a few billion more small arms ammunition than you thought you were going to need otherwise, you're going to have to import it from somewhere. Or you're going to, how many years does it take to restart uh, a lead mine? How many years does it take to build a lead smelter? I don't know, but I think it's more than one. Um, less than a decade, more than one. Who knows? But that's also part of that interesting view of things. Um, something that I've wanted to write for a while about for a while and I haven't. There's even the maintenance issues. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't have the capacity to maintain our submarine fleet at peace uh, what do we do at war when that war goes past 36 weeks and trends toward 36 months? It's that that's that's when things get interesting for me. Like what would be very interesting, not interesting, it'd be a nightmare. And that's what I think the Russians are counting on. If Ukraine didn't have the Western support that it had, where would be we be right now? Well, I think we'd have Russian troops on the Polish border about six months ago, um, but you know, when a nation of 330 million finds itself, for whatever reason, involved in a predominantly maritime and aerospace war in the Western Pacific with its allies, 
against a nation of 1.4 billion, what type of expenditures do you think we're going to do? How many days, weeks, months, or years can you do that before all the wonderful, exquisite uh, weapons you want to use, which I think the Russians are about to run out of uh, some of their ballistic and cruise missiles? Um, what yeah, but they'll just, they'll just bring some World War II airplane. They, they kept everything, so <laughs> they'll, they'll fly some, some variation of a B-29 and continue to bomb people. So. Well, they'll, they'll, they'll find something. Uh, it's like the old, old Einstein quote, except it doesn't have nuclear weapons. He said the uh, World War III will be fought with nuclear weapons. World War IV, IV will be fought with sticks and stones. Um, you know, when wars wars don't end just because somebody runs out of their favorite weapon, you're going to have to use something, um, or maybe you know, last maybe it's like a bar fight. The person that can pass out last wins. Uh, that might be it too. Well, the one of the problems we face with China is that they are you know because of the way they are structured, they can turn uh, building ships into a whole of government operations. So they you know they can do the things we did during World War II during peacetime and it, you know for us to go back to a wartime footing uh, would require again almost a whole of government process which uh, i just i'm not uh, optimistic that we could do that without some really serious threat i mean we, we came close uh, right after 9-11 you know where everybody was kind of on the same page and all that but you know even then we were using equipment that already existed so um, I just I don't know if we can if we could gin up for a major and I, I assume that the bad guys are thinking the same way. Oh, the Americans are too soft; they they won't do what they need to do to to get ready. Yeah, people have always underestimated us, but uh, unfortunately, um, we always tend to under, underestimate other people. Um, people forget how hard. We tried to stay out of World War One. How hard we tried to stay out of of World War Two, while our potential enemies uh, had no problem going to war. And on paper, um, they were bigger and stronger than we are. On paper, uh, we're bigger and stronger now. But uh, the one thing that I'm seeing some of, and I hope we get more of into the conversation is not just on the Navy side, but really nationally. Forget the little tactical details of what's going on in the Russia-Ukrainian war. The macro lesson coming out of there right now, capacity, capacity, capacity. The Russians thought they were going to have a three-day war. They're coming up on 10 months, and it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. We have a lot of people who are in charge of our nation's national security who are not thinking or are not planning, and they're definitely not funding, a long war on the other side of the Pacific. And uh, there's a lot of folks who are talking about it and complaining about it, but I don't see action, uh, and I don't know what it's going to take to, to get that action. Um, you know, will we get the people we need after the 2024 election that are willing to do the hard work for years on end to 
produce something they'll probably never see because these things don't happen overnight. The pre-World War II, like I said, there, that buildup started uh, half a dozen years before the war began. Um, are we going to get an administration and a Congress who's willing to do that? I don't know, but it's not going to happen until um, enough people have knowledge of it and pressure of it, which I guess with a little cricket chirping, uh, hopefully we'll get some <laughs> Some louder creatures, and there are louder creatures. There are good people up on the hill, and there are good people in industry who know this and are pushing as well. And um, But we're going to have to see that movement. But uh, at least it will provide us uh, plenty of topics to talk about on future mid-rats because the, the problem is, is getting worse. And one advantage is we have a recent conflict that we can point to that's ongoing that you can use those – uh, lessons that that uh, people by the tens of thousands are dying over to uh, turn into policy and priorities on our end that hopefully can prevent tens of thousands of our people dying when the next war comes. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me that some of the damage to the Russian armor is being done is from the old-fashioned anti-tank mines. You know, I mean. Uh, those are not that complicated. Yeah, those are not that hard to make. So, uh, you know, if, if you don't mind filling your country up with a bunch of, of things you have to dig up later on to render uh, inert, uh, you know, that that does work. And, and uh, sometimes the simple things, as we discovered during the uh, during the Gulf War, when we had a few of our ships run into uh, uh, World War One type mines. Heck, it might have been World War One, mine. Um, you know, <laughs> you don't have to have the, the sleekest, uh, newest missile system to uh, cause a hell of a lot of damage and, and ruin somebody's day. Sometimes you just need to go back to the basics. And I think, um, I, who who developed it? There's some company out there that has a great little PowerPoint presentation where you know, everybody wants to talk about mission modules and modularity. They literally have developed a mine lane system that's in a issue ISO connex box. And basically all you need to do is drop it on the back of your ship, have a way for them to roll off the end, and there you go. So you now have any ship as a mine layer. All you have to do is put that connex box and get enough get enough duct tape and bailing wire to secure it to the deck and off you go. It's uh but that that's been true for over a hundred years. Uh, yeah, what was that? What was that Iranian? What was that Iranian ship that our we grabbed that uh, was, yeah, was? I mean, it was something really, in a jar. Yeah, yeah, that was that was the, that was the simple mine layer you just described. Yeah. Well, hey, we we just uh, chewed up a whole hour, and uh, I appreciate everybody that that's in the chat room. And uh, just to give everybody a little uh, little premonition, um, next week we believe we have secured a, a guest that's going to give us a graduate-level seminar on the real dangers when it comes to cyber. Uh, everybody likes to say cyber this, cyber that, uh, but the, the truth is a little scary out there. It's what, uh, it's what our, our buddy, the late, great Raymond Pritchett, did on the civilian side of the sector – and uh, this will kind of open that aperture and more to follow. So uh, keep an eye on uh, Eagle One and myself's uh, Twitter feed 
our, our blogs, and we'll let you know about next week's guest. We should firm it up a little bit. So that'll be a nice little uh, early uh, Christmas present for everybody. Yeah, thanks, everybody, for being here today. And we appreciate everybody joining us for another edition of MidRats. And, Jerry, thank you for calling in. And until next time, I hope everybody has a great Navy day. Cheers.